which is huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Kane, son. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study. Not to bring back. But to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome. Hold on. I'm thinking Shoulder Orion. Okay. Mm-mm. Welcome to Perfect Organism. The bl- Oh my god, I was about to say the Blade Runner podcast. <laughs> the Blade Runner podcast. <laughs> Hold on. That's getting a record scratch. Okay. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green and Christian Motzka. Welcome to the show, everyone. How you, How you doing? doing? Good. Hot as hell. Yeah. Dry Jamie, heat. Why do you keep a hat on? I don't, I, I don't understand what hats are my thing. But we were recording Shoulder of Orion last night. Jamie has sweat literally falling off of his face. I'm <laughs> laughing my ass off because like it's it's steaming the computer camera up. I was really hot. And you last had a night. beanie, like a woolen beanie on. How do you do that? And why? Uh, <laughs> uh I, they're like my safety blanket. Mm. Having a hat, I feel more secure with a hat on. But I get it from my dad. He's worn hats all my life, so I don't know. Let's just wear hats. I mean, I'll take it off when this episode's over. <laughs> really? So we're making you nervous. I have to say, I have wanted to wear hats my entire life, and I can't because my head is physically too large. Your hair is a hat. Hats. My <laughs> hair is also a hat in itself. Let's I got a big it. old head too, uh, Christian. Yeah. I think does too. <laughs> I do, I do. But you, you guys, you know who else wears a hat? Who? Brett. Brett wears a hat. Harry Brett Dean Stanton. Hat. Yes. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton. Good, nice segue. Was that a segue, like Christian? That? that was. That was. Oh. I was about to reach over and pick up my Brett hat from Nostromo Crew when I remembered that we were on a podcast, and that does not make good radio to hold up a hat. <laughs> With that being said, today's episode, tonight's episode, whenever you're listening to this show, is our first anatomy of a scene for Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, and Christian had the great idea to discuss brett's death scene in alien i think that i have said far too many times that brett is my favorite character in alien and his death scene is is it's enigmatic it is prolonged it is very very strange there's a lot to unpack with what happened there and so jamie and patrick have have play tested the idea of anatomy of a scene on our sister podcast and they got you know got all the kinks out so now we can really do it here on perfect organism so anatomy of a scene we're going to talk about brett's death and so we're assuming that the scene goes from where as you recall ripley and uh parker have sent brett off to get jonesy the cat who he let go he did not understand what was going on and so off he goes by himself into the bowels of the nostromo Oh, my God. 
and the shit hits the fan. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I got to say I'm distracted because right before we started recording, we were having a, a semi debate about Brett's demise and what mm. might have or might not have happened to him. So uh, I think the situation with Brett seems a little bit less mysterious than Dallas, but um, something to that, you know, is kind of coloring the way that I'm looking at it now is, is this question that's kind of unanswered. And I think part of what I love so much about Alien is that so much of it really remains open to interpretation and becomes this vessel that we put our own fears into quite a bit. And I think Brett's death sequence for many of us is probably, other than the derelict sequence, the scariest part of Alien, especially the first time you watch it. Um, because it's scary in a way that it plays with, you know, horror tropes like don't go in the basement, right? It there's a you know cat jump scare in it and things. But uh it it brings us to the ineffable creature that is at the core of the film for the first time, revealed in its amazing glory. And the you know, I guess to, maybe we can kind of get right into it tonight. The the to me, like obviously, I love Brett. I love the way this is shot, and I hope we get to talk quite a, a bit about that because the chains are so interesting, and you know why they're there in the first place is also a really fun thing to talk about. This is a very technically interesting sequence to watch because it was a technically interesting sequence to make, and it changed a lot while they were filming it. So we'll get to that. But from a from like a personal standpoint, to me, this is all about the alien. It's all about that up close shot of Carlo Rambaldi's unbelievable work on the head, and the fact that we are confronted, as I've said many times, and apologies for, you know, restating it again. But the I think I call it the or the orgy of the unknown. It's like we are confronted with all of these things that make no sense at the same time. And we are left in awe. Uh, the first time, you know, for one thing, we have an alien descending inverted from the ceiling with its tail pointing forward, which is just, it's its like so many strangenesses already happening that we kind of don't know what we're looking at. And we don't have time to react, just like Brett doesn't have time to react. Because by the time we would, this creature is caressing his head in this way that feels strangely maternal almost while opening its mouth and giving us this visage that, of course, looks like nothing before or since. And to my mind, and I think probably to most filmgoers' minds, remains to this day the most beautifully terrifying creature in the history of film. We get like a prolonged close-up with it. And it's really the only time in the movie we get that kind of a look at this at this thing and the way that it operates. And we see the inner jaw and we see the saliva and we see the incredible color and the depth of field and the way that it elongates out of the frame. Just a really beautiful creature sequence that lets us know for the first time the actual danger that the crew is in. Because, of course, before this, it's been a parasite attack, right? It's been like, oh, we shouldn't have let him back on the ship. Now there's this like little thing running around. Like, we're, you know, we, we got to do something about it. Let's go catch it with, you know, a net, right? And after the sequence, they know that a net is not going to get them off. And the only hope for their survival is to get the fuck off that ship. So it really sets up the second half of the movie in such an eloquent way and remains to this day second, maybe third or fourth to a couple of other moments in the movie that mean a lot to me. My favorite part uh, in all of Alien, the whole saga, because I think it is a a wonderful, wonderful testament to the incredible design that Giger did and that Ribaldi helped pull off and that Eddie Powell standing in for Balaji Badejo brought to ineffable life in that sequence. What I love about this scene is how unsettled you are the entire time but it's an unsettling because we as the audience are unsettled we kind of you can pick up a little bit that something's happening brett doesn't so we the audience are almost informed a little bit more we don't know what's 
coming, but we feel it. This scene in movies like this, when the scene goes on a long time and it's the spaces are opened up, they're setting us up for something. But Brett doesn't know he's being set up for anything. So we have more knowledge about just a little tiny, tiny bit more like, okay, something's going to happen just in the time, him taking off his hat and putting his head up and the, the water, the, the water from whatever, the condensation on his face, cooling him off. And as he's looking for the cat, but what's so terrifying about this is this is almost like a scene in Jaws, but Jaws is scary because we've all been in the water, certainly the ocean, and you don't know what's under your feet. It could be anything at any moment. So we're kind of psychologically, we're ready for that. We know what we're entering into. Whereas this is, this ship is home for Brett and home is not safe. And we know this about, I don't know, how long is the sequence? Seven minutes? I don't know exactly the length, but I would say I would halfway. Guess four, four to five minutes would be my, okay. my guess. Okay. So I would say halfway into this sequence, you can kind of gather that something's going on, but this is also Brett's home, his space home. And he thinks he's looking for, well, he's looking for Jonesy, but whatever the creature is on the ship, it's this tiny little thing. It's not really, it's nothing. It's not going to bother him. Or if, if it does bother him, it's, you know, it's, it's as small as a cat and they can deal with it. Um, what we don't expect is like you were saying, Patrick, this thing, almost like an angel or like just whatever, like floating in, um, behind him, like floating down from the rafters. I mean, it's really, really creepy and its body's inverted or something's up with it, but we don't know what we're looking at either. And it's heads down too. When we first see it, it's head is lowered almost like, uh, when Lambert sees the, the creature for the first time, they move the head up and set kind of slow pan down the slope of the head. It's a little similar with Brett, but it's instantaneous. And then you don't see it. You just see the, that silhouette behind you and that is terrifying just like in in jaws when you see the silhouette of the of the shark pass by someone how terrifying that is and i i don't know any other film aside from jaws and alien that really has this kind of authentic scare i love it in fiction there's often a moment where a character is making poor choices and the audience is more aware than they are and starts you know as a reader you start becoming anxious for them or, or you're doubting them or yelling at them even. And this happens again in movies as well, but it's actually a bit of a trick because when, when a creator makes a story in that model, they trick the audience into believing the danger that the character is in because you're now, because you're smarter than this character and you're thinking this character needs to leave the space. You've bought into what the creator wanted you to believe all along. So you've bought into the, the narrative more than if a character is making smart choices. And I think that's part of what's happening with Brett is we know that we're watching a horror movie, but we also are feeling the same fear that we wish he was feeling. We wish he was reacting to, and he's not. And it's such an odd moment. And for the most part, we can say, well, as Jamie was saying, he's in his safe place. This is his home. This is you know, this is the lower deck. He, he lives here. He works here. But when he finds that alien skin on the ground and he holds it up, even Brett has to know this means this creature has molted. This means the creature has gotten larger, but he doesn't seem to react like we want him to. And that's where I think that the writers have so cleverly 
walked that line between a character making choices that are so dumb that we hate them and characters who are flawed and are continuing on in a way that we want to see it through, but we know it's not going to end well for them. So it's, and maybe this is a four minute sequence, five minute sequence, but on paper, on the script, it's one page. And the rule is usually one page of script equals one minute of screen time. And so what happened? Because this could have been really short. He could have walked in there. He could have said Jonesy a few times, picked up the skin and the alien kills him. But that is absolutely not what happens. There is an amazing exploration. And from what we know, it was not only uh, Ridley Scott, but also Harry Dean Stanton coming up with ideas of the things that Brett could do. And on some level, there appears to almost, in my mind, there appears to be almost a, a ritualistic quality to some of the, the actions that he performs. What Does that ring true with you guys? Or I can explain more what I mean. It, yeah. If, can you? Well, it feels like we are in the middle of a sacrificial ritual that he is the chosen one and he washes himself and he prepares himself. He, he takes his hat off. He does all these. It's he's just, he's just getting his face wet. He's a, he's for some odd reason, he's feeling like this water is clean enough to drink even, but it's just before the alien kills him. And throughout the entire film, there are these um, there's Egyptian motifs uh, reoccurring from the the symbol for Wailing Yutani being an Egyptian um, uh, wing symbol to um, the way that the room that they're in is laid out. There was a whole, uh, there's a whole section of it that's, that is done in gold. that feels like we've gone into the inner chamber of a pyramid. And then the alien by, by stabbing him through the head and removing his brain. Well, of course, when they prepared a mummy, they would go up through the nose, but it's still, you're, you're destroying part of the face to, to remove uh, part of the brain and it's just one more step, one more preparatory aspect. So that's how I'm not saying it's literally a ritual. And I'm not saying that Brett is in any way consciously partaking in that. But when I look at it, I can't help but feel like there's an echo of that. And the movie is full of echoes of not just Egyptian, you know, mythology and culture, but but of of various like literary tropes that a lot of them become kind of unconscious to us. And then when people are creative together in a space like this, they come come out in really interesting intertextual ways. And I want to come back to that point in one second. So I'm going to bookmark that. But before I do, I remembered why, why I was talking about the egg morphing stuff in the beginning being not the answer is because of an amazing article in Strange Shapes, which everybody obviously should be reading, uh, which quotes Ridley Scott as saying that the point of that sequence is to show that the victims are being used as nutrients for the egg to grow they're not actually mutating into an egg so when you see brett being subsumed by the egg it's not because he's becoming one it's because he's being dissolved to feed the egg that's growing around him so i want to get that out because i'm going to forget to come back to it jamie looks confused but where would the egg come from that's growing around him yeah it could be a spore <laughs> could be the alien po- oh you know it could be the queen pooping an egg out you know it could be, but could be many for all intents and purposes it's egg morphing i mean yeah, but he's not consciously like becoming an egg. He's 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 just dissolving like in a Venus flytrap, and you know, could be okay. The so maybe the the creature itself has reproductive quality. At, uh, so instinctively, with, with whatever these creatures are, if there's a lone one that's birthed, yeah. it has the capability to essentially it's parthenogenesis. Yeah, 
Right. And, and, and I, again, we're actually kind of going to revisit this, I'm sure, in two weeks when we have our long-awaited biology episode with Alex White and uh, an amazing collaborator of theirs who's a biology teacher is going to come on and an amazing collaborator of ours, Andy Geek Girl, who's also a biology teacher, will be coming on. And we got to remember part of, the, part of the genetic reproduction in that episode and bring it up again. Remember that when Alien was filmed, there was no explanation for what the eggs were doing on the derelict and there was no explanation for any of this. And it wasn't until Aliens that we got the queen to come around. So like this was really very much unknown. And I love that alien just bathes itself in that. Speaking of bathing oneself, let's go back to Brett getting his face wet for a moment. So this whole sequence, you know, I think it's not an accident that we are talking about how it's only a few minutes long. I mean, it probably is even under four to five minutes. It's probably three, a three minute, maybe four minute sequence, but it feels like it's so much longer than that. And on the page, it's even shorter than that. It's because it's treated with almost like, like it's holy, right? It's treated as something sacred. And so much of the film is like that. But to me, this is a great example. This in the derelict sequence, where you have these things that on the page look very simple. You know, this is basically just, it's, it's an excuse to show the audience that the alien is big. And it's an excuse to get rid of one of the characters and to signal that, okay, now we're fucked. Let's have a fun, scary time for the rest of the movie, but it's treated as sacrosanct by the people who made it. And that I think is so interesting. So when Brett walks down that corridor for the first time and we see him backlit, it feels like he's walking into church. And, and even as a kid, I used to think that, like I used to pretend when I was in church as a kid that I was in the boiler room of the Nostromo because that's what it felt like to me. Cause I would look up and see these vaulted arches and these huge ceilings and hear clanking noises. And I really felt like I was in that space and the space itself, you know, as, as we've talked about in other episodes, feels almost like the internal, like the feels almost like, I mean, Christian, you even called it a bowel, right? It feels like you're traveling into the, into the belly of some monstrous beast that you can't even comprehend. And as I'm sitting here talking about this tonight, I'm wondering if the reason why it's so humid in there, and actually, I think I just figured it out for myself, and maybe this is written somewhere else, but it's probably because of the metabolism of the creature, right? Like when they conceptualized the movie, the alien had like a four-day life cycle, right? It basically lived like a fly. It grew incredibly fast because it just metabolized at an amazing rate of speed, and then it died. And that's why in the end of the movie, it's so sluggish is because it's basically about to be to be dead. So like, if you look at it through that lens, if you have like uh, an organism that is much taller than a human, an average human man, springing to that stage in a matter of, you know, hours from the initial encounter when it's tiny, like the, the about the amount of metabolic heat being given off would probably be kind of extreme. And I feel like if this is the area where the alien has been growing, which indeed it appears to be, it would make a lot of sense that it'd be crazy hot and humid in there. And that like Brett, you know, doing that could be, you know, gesturing to us that this is actually like a, basically a sauna because this creature's life cycle is so extreme. That being said, nobody's thinking that when they're watching the movie. And, you know, I've seen it 400 times and I'm just thinking of it for the first time as we're talking tonight. So we can kind of bookmark that for later. But I think that the, the, the overall feeling of reverence in this sequence is really extraordinary. And I say that not only in terms of the way that it's shot and the use of Steadicam and the use of slowing down, the complete absence of music from almost all of it, the just the the, the sense of just lingering slow dread. Um, but I mean, also just in the way that it was made. This is a sequence that took a lot of time. They had to remake the whole soundstage to film it. They used the actual roof of the soundstage as the roof of this boiler room, and all those chains that are hanging down were just there anyway for moving props and set pieces around. And they just left them, which I, I just lo I love. It's, and it's such a it's such a simple choice, but it's one of those things that 
you know, if you're responding to the artistic creative impulse in the moment, you're going to be open to. And it's one of those things that contributes to the sense of unreality, right? Because as we're watching it, we're thinking like, what are these giant wind chimes hanging off the ceiling? Like, what could they possibly be used for? And not even thinking, oh, this is just somewhere outside London at a soundstage. Like, we're not even aware of that. Um, and the whole thing is is shot with a, a series of moments like that, as as you know, I'm sure Christian knows more than I do about this, but in or maybe Jamie too. In my you know personal like interpretation of this, what something that I love is that the scene changed so much from the initial way that it was written to the way that it ended up. Like as Ridley has said in multiple places, this sequence basically was just that the alien was supposed to dart out and grab Brett. That was kind of all that they had written down for this scene. And then as they were doing motion tests with Balaji in the suit, they felt like it looked kind of weird for him to move quickly. So they made the decision that we were going to see the alien basically just in a series of discrete poses throughout the movie. So it wasn't going to be in motion very much. And a brief aside, this is a great case study in alien isolation again, because they realized the same thing making that game that the alien looks ridiculous when it's moving quickly so they had to change the leg architecture to make it make sense physically and it does and it's really scary but in the context of making alien the film you know they didn't have the time to do that to re-engineer the thing to move well so they just had it be st still and um you know that's why Balaji went to the mime classes and things and that's why they they basically set up this gracefulness to this to this thing that feels so at odds with what's happening and i think that's part of why it's so powerful is we see this thing that not only looks as beautiful as it looks scary but moves as beautifully as it does frighteningly and that i think gets at the heart of why this works so well is we really truly don't know how to classify anything that's happening. And we walk into church and we leave in hell. And that's it's incredible that that happens in three to five minutes. Four minutes and 18 seconds, according to multiple YouTube clips that I just double-checked. That was pretty close. That was pretty good. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, about the, the water dripping, just one thought. There's the scene where... Ripley comes down to talk to Parker and Brett and Parker has, as we discover at the end, uh, created a large amount of steam. There's this, you know, pouring in and he turns a vent off and shuts it off. Is the Nostromo partially steam powered? Is there something to that? Is there, is there, you know, boiling hot water rushing through the pipes and therefore there's condensation and it drips down and this actually rings a bell because there was a guest on the Alien Minute podcast five, six years ago uh, that was positing that the drinking birds that we see in the opening shot as we pan through the Nostromo um, right on the table in the galley, there's water in that in the cup that they're uh, dunking their heads in. And the crew has been in stasis for 10 months. There wouldn't be water in the cup unless there was a drip, a drip from the ceiling and they've put a cup there to catch the drip, and the drinking birds are just a whimsical way of using up the water. So there, I wasn't the first person to think this. I think that the Nostromo, on some level, is uh, is steam powered. Yes, and that's where the condensation. Now, did you guys know that that large structure hanging in the middle is is one of the uh, landing legs of the Nostromo? That was something. It, it took until the Blu-ray or maybe DVD, but. Early on, I, I had no idea that we were looking at literally the same structure that we see Ridley's children walk by in the reduced um, costumes of the, you know, the the um, the Stromo spacesuits. But they took that thing and they just they lifted it up, and so that's where we are on the ship. We're literally in the room 
that contains one of the three or four landing legs. Interesting. So it's not a boiler room I, after all. It's a, well, it's like I a, was thinking so to, in terms of life support and air conditioning, you have a moth in your house, Christian. <laughs> did you see it? I did see it. Uh, very <laughs> weird. Um, I was thinking that the water is from the condensation for, for life support and the coolant, right? Like that stuff's got to go somewhere. It, when you're cooling down a, a ship of that size, there's going to be after effects. There's going to be, there's going to be like with your refrigerator, like our refrigerators can send, can build up condensation in the back. And, a sh but this is a ship. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but Patrick, I, I was a little confused. Were you suggesting that the room is, or that space is damp or sweaty or whatever, because the aliens present I was thinking it could be, I mean, it could okay. be one of many things, but, but the reason I'm bringing it up is because in, you know, in the initial plans for the film, they were going to show its life cycle much more clearly, and it was going to be emphasized how rapid it was, right? And that to accrete that much mass that quickly, I mean, the alien puts on like 900 pounds in three hours, right? There would have to be just a huge amount of metabolic activity happening, and that would generate heat. So if you're generating heat in a closed environment, you're going to generate precipitation as well. So that's kind of, you know, if the alien has been growing in this enclosed space for that long, it would make sense to me, you know, that that could be happening. Did we discuss Brett's relationship with Jones the cat? Because he starts, you know, saying, here, kitty, kitty. And then he cuts it. I can't remember what the exact line is, but like, screw that or something. Jones. <laughs> I think he says kitty shit or something like that. No, no more of this kitty shit, something like that. What's interesting, though, about that, Pat, uh, Christian, is you see a side of Brett that you're not seeing for the rest of the film where he goes here kitty kitty he's very tender he's very and then it's almost like what am i doing i'm being too sensitive i'm being too i gotta i gotta be brett so he retreats back into his stoic jones like like he's calling parker or something which i thought was funny it is very odd to hear him use that almost falsetto voice to call the cat it doesn't work anyway you know cat doesn't want to come to brett and it's funny because he spends so much of the film up to that point being essentially silent you know um, and it's and it's the most time we get with him in this movie, and he's not in the movie that much, is this sequence where he's just alone wandering this these hallways looking for a cat, which is really funny. And Harry Dean Stanton, I think, is an actor who is uh, somewhat undervalued, I think, just historically in terms of like just the range that he has. I think he kind of he's known so well for being Brett that people might not have seen him in other things, but but he he plays comedy really well. He plays a whole variety of stuff. But one thing that he says, and this is in the J.W. Rensler book, Making of Alien, which hopefully everybody has, he talks about how he struggled to play scared. Like that was something that he just didn't feel like he was good at. And so filming the sequence was hard for him because he felt like he could play the rest of it. Like he could play the kind of deadpan stuff, looking for the cat. He could be kind of funny. He could be kind of awkward. He could be a tough guy. But when it came time to be authentically terrified, he 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 found that challenging. But, of course, the suit had been hidden from most people making the movie, and I, I'm sure that the first time he saw it, he had some authentic fear in him. What's great about this sequence as well and it reminds me of just what you guys are talking about in terms of there's being a religious aspect to this or a uh what was the term that you used christian um 
it's not sacred, sacrificial. but it's sacrificial. But that whole scene, the whole area that he's in, it feels like a cathedral. It feels almost like a church. It's very regal. I mean, we don't really know what we're seeing, but it's vast. It's huge. It's a huge open space, and it's quiet. And it fe- and then you have the rain, not rain, but you have the, the, the water dripping, and you can Metabolic activity. Thank you very and, much. And the chains, almost like chimes in a church when you hear, when you go into a church, you'll hear like chimes being rung or whatever. And this whole, and what's so interesting about the scene is the dichotomy where it feels sacred. It feels like a cathedral, but at the same time, the devil's in the church. And we can sense that the devil is there, but Brett can't quite yet. But in the beginning, when they're telling Brett to go look for Jonesy, I really feel like um, Harry Dean Stanton's reaction is really like, he, you see fear in his eyes. He doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to go by himself because that's what they're telling him. Well, you let the cat go, go get it, you know? But, and he's kind of like, oh, okay. And you see, and it was, I thought it was really, just this really short, amazing performance from him and what fear is when you don't, especially for men, because women have the freedom to be afraid. Men don't have as much freedom because men are this and men are the, you know, we'll kill the alien. We'll do this and we'll do that. But it was a moment where he seemed, I don't want to use the term weak because I I don't, I don't think weak is appropriate, but he seemed vulnerable. He seemed emotionally vulnerable for what is about to happen because he doesn't, even though what they believe is the alien is running around and it's small, it's still creepy. You have this little thing that's creepy as hell that has the capacity to burst through a human. So it's strong running around. So we, even if it stayed the size it was, it could still have done great damage to Brett. And I think he knows that, but that sh- quiet little moment of ex- that expression on his face when they're like, okay, go find him," He doesn't want to. You know he doesn't want to. And you don't. The only other person I see that in is Lambert. And uh, it was just a really beautiful moment. Again, in this place that is a home for them. And it's beautiful. I mean, again, the art direction and the the design of the Nostromo every step of the way is just extraordinary. Um, I've never, I've seen hints of it in uh, Covenant. Uh, when they go into the room towards the end, when the alien, then they blow the alien out the airlock, whatever that room a little bit reminds me of it. It's got similar texture Prometheus. There's a little bit of that in there as well, but nothing beats alien. It's just so beautiful, but to have something so dark, he's like the creature's like a land shark. Essentially it's, it's a, it's a man eater and it's in this space where it shouldn't be. And you can't get more terrifying than that. I think that Brett takes a long time to process things that are new to him. And so when they don't, when, when it isn't an alien inside that storage unit or whatever, and it's a cat, he just doesn't get it. They're, they're, they're laughing because, or they're, they're making noises because they're upset. And he just is laughing and looking at him like, what? It was a cat. It was a cat. And even when they're saying you have to go get the cat, I, I still don't think he understands what is going on, you know? And Maybe that's why he's distracted. Maybe when he's picking up the the alien's shed skin and should be thinking about that, he's still thinking, why am I getting the cat? You know, he's he's a couple steps back at all times. And God, I love him, but it's it's hard to watch that happen. And you're right, he does have a moment of vulnerability, as Lambert does a few times in the film. 
Lambert's the one that tells us how it is, how we all ought to be feeling. But that's not the only thing that, that Brett and Lambert share, because there is a moment in Brett's death scene that was snipped and placed at Lambert's death scene instead. And that is when he's standing there and the alien's tail comes up between his legs. Brett is wearing Nostromo issue sneakers and Lambert wears cowboy boots throughout the whole movie until her death when suddenly she's wearing Brett's sneakers and is wearing Brett's blue pants. So it's kind of fun that they, they move those things around. And in I've seen a drawing that Ridley did where the idea was the tail was going to come up between his legs around his back and the tail would then poke him in the back as the alien embraces his head. So it's going to be this really convoluted kind of, I don't think the tail was supposed to hurt him as much as push him forward or hold him in place for that kiss. But they, they removed that and found what is arguably a creep, creepier place for it with Lambert's death. But it would have been part of the sequence to make it even longer and stranger. What's also really interesting about that, the removal of it and the placement in Lambert with Lambert's death scene is that automatically so many people thought by seeing this, the, the tail cre- creep up between the legs, oh, it's raping her. It's going to rape her. But actually that was Brett and no one assumed would have assumed that, but because it was with Lambert, it took on this sexual thing, which I never really truly understood. Like why, why would it, why is it going to do that? Why would it, it could, it could have done that to Brett too. I mean, it's just a, a very strange thing to me with well, something in fandom that I don't understand, but the prolonged sounds that are made with no explanation, which again was a brilliant, horrifying choice. I think that people take, Take those two, the two things that were given, were given a suggestive image and a really long drawn out series of noises. And that's where people go with it. But I agree with you when, if that scene were put back in Brett's death, no one would have gone to that place. So, but Brett is so passive in that moment. He's so frozen in fear, I suppose, that there's, there's no reaction really. It's just, it, it goes there's a look on his face and then and then he dies. But then the scene doesn't end in the director's cut. There is this extra bit after he goes up where Parker and Ripley enter the room and see it happen. Parker actually gets drenched in in Brett's blood. And they cut that for the theatrical release. And I'm I'm really torn about it because I think I think I like that Brett dies alone. I think that is a sadder ending. Um but it it makes more sense because Parker talks about seeing the creature in the, in the very next scene when he's all cleaned up and wearing, you know, a new fresh uniform, he talks about what happened. So what, how do you guys feel? Do you prefer not having them witness it? Very much so. Yeah. I, I think that part of the strength of alien is in showing less and allowing more room for you to put your own self in. I think that Lambert's death is a great example of that. Like in that, like you were saying, Christian, we're just presented with a series of guttural noises and extended screams, and it's up to us to kind of figure out what that means for ourselves. So to me, like it, it doesn't bother me that we don't get closure on how Parker saw Brett being carried up because we just assume that he saw the flash of a tail going through the roof or something, and that was all he had time to see. And to me, like having them show up, it, it almost feels like a Scooby-Doo moment where they're like, whoa, whoa, you know, there's just something kind of off about that. And I think it's, it's such a testament to the filmmaking that they knew what to cut, even though they filmed pretty intense sequences and paid the actors to be on set and done the, you know, rigged things for the blood effects and things that they just got, got rid of it. 
but the whole the whole sequence and the whole film is full of moments like that like getting rid of the tail pushing brett towards the creature to be impaled by the head like not only is it more elegant to not do that but it's scarier because it makes less sense like we don't know how any of what we're seeing is happening right we just see this thing floating down somehow writing itself on the floor and then caressing a face and killing a man who's just frozen and transfixed in, in fear. And, and we don't know who saw what. We don't know exactly how long it took. We don't know where he went. We didn't really get closure on if he actually died or not because we hear him screaming as he's being pulled up. Like we really, it's it's just, a, it's just a very strange moment that happens so quickly and so unresolvedly that we're kind of left in shock after it. Like, you know, which is amazing because we had already just been through that with Kane's death. The first time we see Kane's death, I guarantee everybody in the movie theater who didn't know that was coming was speechless for the next 25 minutes of the film. And then it happens again. And it's another moment of just like absolute incomprehensible fear. And, um, and I think that the whole film is like a series of moments like that where things didn't quite work the way they wanted it to. I mean, the reality is, is the tail was a pain in the ass the entire filmmaking process anyway. So they would never have been able to articulate it as well. And of course, if you look closely at the way the final film came out, you can very clearly tell that the tail is rigged the same way that Eddie Powell is rigged on this fucking thing coming out of the ceiling because like it just what like the tail is just tied to a rope that's tied to a rope that's also carrying Eddie Powell. Um, you know, it's it's not very advanced filmmaking, but the limitations like that's the kind of stuff that we just never get anymore that I hate because now like we can see everything and and because we can see everything we always do like everybody just shows everything in these films like there would be no question if if alien were shot today i'm sure we could have gotten some masterful filmmaker to do it right but i guarantee we would have seen a way more you know comprehensible version of that sequence where it would have been crawling down lithely and it would have looked really cool and we would have seen it pick itself up and it would have looked like a cut sequence from a video game and um, and it would have made sense and we wouldn't be here talking about it now at all. Like we never talk about those other sequences in the other films, in the newer films. Like we, we, I'm not like mystified by anything in Alien vs. Predator, you know? There's nothing in that where I'm like confronted by this ancient Lovecraftian idea of like, oh my God, I wasn't the first one here. What's going to happen? Like when you watch Alien, all these things that were fixed because the suit wasn't working properly or because Balaji couldn't get the blood out of his head in time to be flipped the right way up again. All these things that they did make the film more memorable because it's less, it makes less sense. And there's just so little of that now. Um, I want to just because I haven't had the floor for a minute. There's something else I wanted to talk about for a while, a while back about the sequence. There's two moments in the film that are not defined by claustrophobia. And what's interesting is that they are, in my opinion, the two scariest moments in the film, but they're also the two moments in the film that I think a lesser filmmaker would have found to be the best moments for claustrophobia, right? The first is the derelict sequence, which takes place out in the open of LV-426, essentially. I mean, they go into the ship and it's, you know, it gets a little claustrophobic in there, but like the defining sequence in that is actually in a room that's like, you know, 40 feet tall and is wide open and cavernous, right? And that's what many people, including those many of us on the show, think is maybe the most frightening and beguiling moment in all of Alien, um, you know, and that's, that's wide open. Likewise, Brett's death scene in every other movie, literally every other movie I can think of, whether it be, um, you know, uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Cabin in the Woods. Um, what's the one that we just saw last year with Justin Long that we all loved? Um, Barbarian. Barbarian, right? Like every horror film has a moment in it. Not every horror film, I'm generalizing. Many horror films have a moment in it where 
a protagonistic character is led into some dark room, the descent, a great example is, and something terrible happens in enclosed darkness, silence of the lamps, right? Like the lights go off and we are terrified because, oh my God, it could be anywhere and now we're stuck. This movie, the whole thing is claustrophobic except for those two sequences, right? It's all corridors that are seven feet tall. It's like, you know, it's birthing chambers. It's hospital med bays. It's these tiny little things. And then we have these two moments of grandeur. And when Brett goes into this room, which I guess is a, a apparently a landing gear storage facility. I didn't realize that until you're mentioning it, but now I definitely can see it. Um, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's huge. It's 80 feet tall. It's literally a full soundstage. And I love that, like, again, it's another contradiction happening simultaneously where we we are registering it as this is the moment where, uh, you know, we are now trapped in a space with this creature and there's no escape from it. But we're not trapped at all because, like, this is the only chance that Brett could have had to get away. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, it's, it's like the only space you could possibly have run away from something in, in the entire film. And he can't because he's so afraid and so confused. And that makes it so much stronger for me. And so much more um, just like limitlessly scary. Like it's just such a fucking scary thing to think about, to have all the room in the world to get away and yet not to be able to move your feet. And I just love that. While you were talking, I and I was listening, but while you were talking, I had this uh, realization, the landing gear is, they're quite long compared to the size of the ship. And so that chamber, even though it's on sea deck, it's the, the lowest level of the ship for the, for the landing gear to retract, the top of it has to go the whole way up to a deck, right? And that's where the alien is. And throughout the whole movie, after the chest burster scene, the alien never returns to a deck. It's always in the lower levels. It's skulking around, blah, blah, blah. But actually it was, it was up there with them just on the other side of a wall that there probably isn't any doorway, but there's definitely vents. And I don't know why this is just kind of, it's, I think because the lighting on a deck with the the galley and the med bay and whatever um, wasn't good for the suit, the suit's limitations kept it out of that sequence, out of out of those areas. It was better to film it in darker areas. But I just love the idea that this scene actually puts the alien up in what I have been assuming was the safest part of the ship, but it's still it's right there. Just the, the whole ship is a nightmare. It's just a uh, and they call it a haunted house and the, the creaking chains and all that totally plays into that. But it, it it's almost as contradictory. The Nostromo is almost as contradictory as the derelict ship on the planet of there. He goes in through one set of doors and he enters a room and then he walks through that room and there's another set of doors and it's an even larger room. And just the, it's a labyrinth. It's, it, it makes sense to them. No one ever reacts to it in any way that would let us know that it's out of place. But as an audience, I'm so disoriented. I never quite know in those lower levels where I'm supposed to be. Another thing that I love about this is uh, I, I think about like your basement, Patrick, and your house. And it's a place that you're there every day. You know what's there. You know with minutia where everything is, where your kids play, the video games, all of that. But with the lights off and you're looking down and it's dark outside, it becomes something completely different. Even though you're intimately familiar with that space. And I think that's the horror of Alien, where, of course, they feel at home in that ship. And it's vast, but there's, why would they, why would they feel scared? They would, they shouldn't feel scared. I mean, maybe a little bit unsettled that there's, again, a little midget, or a little tiny thing running around. Um, 
they're they're not reacting to these spaces because they're used to them. There's nothing in there. This is humans built this. We're in space. These th- we don't. I don't know if there has been contact with alien life at that point within the alien timeline. Um, perhaps I'm not really sure. I don't know if any there's any data on that. But there's no reason for Brett or anyone to not feel safe on that ship. But then you turn the lights out. And the lights were already turned out for the audience, which is when I love it when they when filmmakers are smart enough to do this, to give the audience just a little bit more information, even if it's a, a music note. And um, even it's, it's silence, which is in this case, the scene is played in silence. And that to me is a score note. Okay, this is silent because they're not and they're not manipulating us. At the same time, the silence can be manipulative because the silence sets up something else. But the the fact that Ridley Scott knew and the editor knew that we're just going to give the audience a little bit more so they're a little bit further ahead than this character here is brilliant without being obvious about it, without being stereotypical about it, without being heavy handed with it. They just gave us a little bit more. And that how that house, that ship was terrifying to us at that moment when before that we were like, oh, this is so cool. Look at this, you know. And I just love that something so familiar can become something so terrifying so quickly. I just, I just to answer your question, Jamie, Ripley specifically says, you know, asks if it's if it's of human origin when they talk about the uh, the signal and the idea that it's not of human, potentially not of human origin, feels a little bit like yeah, you know that that's also a possibility. And then on top of that the quarantine that she's talking about. She needs to know what kind of life form is stuck on his face. Again, there's not the, what do you mean there's alien life? So I think the implication is very, very subtly, yes, we've we've encountered something, but we certainly haven't encountered this. True. Which I it, love. Yes, because when they're first listening to that beacon, Ripley goes human. And then I think Dallas is unknown. So yeah. almost like we've encountered things that haven't been human before. Totally. Yeah. We still have to stop. Now, speaking of Alien, um, one other p- part one other part that the director's cut reintroduces is a shot from above where we see Brett walking and you actually see the alien looking down on him. And I am so glad that that's not in the theatrical cut because it's neat to see. Great, they shot it. You know, that's that was a choice, but it completely removes the, the great reveal of the full suit. By showing it from above, you're like, oh, there it is, right? Just so you know, that's right there. Instead of the alien could be anywhere and the alien could be anything. So that when we, we do finally see it, it's so much more powerful. Probably coming to the end of this, but we do need to at least say, say that the cat was genuinely frightened using a piece of glass and a German shepherd. I a believe. German shepherd, yeah. <laughs> they they released they, they they lifted a cover, um, and the cat saw through the glass that there was a German shepherd and, and very genuinely reacted to the presence of something that could do it harm. It's a good acting. It was good. Acting. I wonder how they got the cat to react. That was sitting. That was on Ripley in Aliens, or does the same hiss? Yeah, I don't know that one. I think that, James that... Cameron yelled at it. It just uh, that was... 
He said, I heard that maybe it was another cat, but who knows? <laughs> I guess just as, as we kind of come to our closing thoughts here on this, um, I, I want to just give a special thanks to Harry Dean Stanton as an actor and to take a moment to memorialize him because he, you know, unfortunately died a few years back. And if you only know of him through Alien, for one thing, that's okay. But make sure you watch movies like Cool Hand Luke, uh, Godfather Part Two. Uh, a film called Lucky that came out in 2017. That was, did either of you see that? Logan Lucky, Lucky Logan. Is it that no, one? <laughs> it's oh. not that movie. That's, that's a good movie too, but no, this, this is very different. It's called Lucky and he plays like a 90 something year old uh, farmhand. It's shot, I think all black and white. And it's just this like incredibly lyrical, it's his last role. And, uh, and it's just, it's just wonderful. And you just get to revel in the beauty of his face, which was so expressive and so unique among actors. Just, there's just nobody that looked or acted like Harry Dean Stanton did every role that he was in. He was like a little bit off, but in a way that really made sense for the character, just, just an amazing actor. And, uh, and one of the defining character actors of the second half of the 20th century, I think. And, you know, you can see that in many film roles, but in this particular one, it's just he carries that sequence in such a beautifully understated way. You know, I, I agree with you that he is actually great at showing terror. I think it actually says a lot about him that he feels like he can't, you know, because it shows how humble he was and how, you know, he was aware of what he felt his own limitations were. But I, I find tons of authentic terror in his performance. And I think what I love about him is something that like I, you know, I, I frequently I faulted my, you know, I've, I've acted in a million things in my life, something that I, I faulted myself on a lot, which is, you know, if I'm instructed to be afraid of something, you know, there's like a pretty, a pretty narrow range of ways that I will show that. Right. Um, what I love is that when Harry Dean Stanton acts afraid of something, he does it like almost with not acting at all. It's like, he just sort of telegraphs through very simple means, a lot of information. And for people who haven't acted a lot, I, I cannot reinforce enough how difficult to do that is. And it's difficult to do that in a community theater production. It's difficult to do that on Broadway. And it is really fucking difficult to do that on a film set where you're surrounded by talented people who are paying you money to be there to perform and to be at the pivotal death sequence. You know, this is Jaws getting Alex Kittner. This, this, is, this is the moment that the rest of the film hinges on. And, you know, you would think that he would be terrified and screaming and shaking and breathing. And instead, he just walks into the abyss completely pulled by it. And it's just a really understated performance. And um, so I, I just want to make sure, you know, we've talked a lot about actors whom we've lost since, you know, I mean, at least since I've been on the show, I know we've we've talked about maybe seven or eight people who we've lost in recent years. But because Harry Dean Stanton's death preceded at, at least my time on the show, um, I haven't really gotten to say that out loud before. So I, I, I want to just, you know, thank him and his legacy and all of the amazing work that he did. And I, I'm really grateful that we have this sequence to just bathe in it because he, he really was one of the great character actors. I really mean that. Put a plug in for big love as well, because it's a twofer. You also get Bill Paxton, but he had a really surprising reoccurring role on that show that, uh, I found amazing. I, I'm a huge Harry Dean Stanton fan and Paris, Texas. And he was a staple of, of David Lynch films in the eighties and nineties. So shows up in a lot of odd places there too. What I love about uh, the character of Brett is how iconic his costume is, where you see hints of that everywhere in sci-fi everywhere, whether it's a cup someone's holding or the hat, there's always a 
not always, but there's a tip of the hat to that character almost everywhere, whether it's in a, a, a Marvel film where Harry Dean Stanton says, did you see an alien? I mean, but there's far more subtle hints to his iconic character everywhere. And it it's just a testament to how powerful Alien is as a piece of art, as a, a living, breathing piece of art that these characters continue to reverberate and resound in our hearts and our minds, but also in other media. It's like people can't even get, I mean, there's a scene in um, that, that Paul W S Anderson film um, where they go to the ship. Event horizon, event horizon. There's a scene in event horizon that channels um, Parker and Lambert getting the oxygen so they can get back. There's a whole scene where they're almost doing the exact same thing. That's how, that's how powerful this film is. That's how inspired filmmakers are post alien to continue to wink back and um, show reverence and respect to, to, to this film that redefined the genre. So I I'm excited to continue talking about it. Um, there's so much, I mean, we're talking about fear and the fear in Lambert, like that's a whole nother show, like how Veronica Cartwright channeled authentic fear. And I'm looking for that in another alien film. I'm looking for that in Romulus. I'm looking for someone to, to be that authentically afraid because if they're that afraid, I'll be that afraid. So I'm excited to talk about more. Amen. It's a good thing. Listen, everyone. Yeah. Thanks everybody. Hey, don't forget to support us on Patreon. Uh, before we wrap, we are we are changing things up a little bit. You're going to notice we got a couple more frame rates coming out, and then we're going to be switching formats slightly to do more franchise-specific exclusive content for Patreon. So talking more about alien things, especially expanded universe things, but also Blade Runner expanded universe things as well. So if you want more of what we do here, but you want extra, um, sign up for Patreon at patreon.com slash perfectorganism. And uh, and you'll see in the coming months, we have a lot of plans. Christian and I are both big EU nerds. And so I've been kind of waiting to be able to just blab about this shit for a long time. So we're going to have a lot of fun with that. Um, and we're going to get Jamie into it. And then we're all going to talk about it together. It's going to be great. And uh, yeah, so so head over there. Thank you all. To find out more information about Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please go to www.perfectorganism.com. If you would like to support the show, please go to www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.